Okay, thank you. We're going to start. Great. So just put your hand on the shoulder of the person next to you and say, it's not coffee that fulfills you, but Jesus. We just, we just want to correct the theology here from Murray, please. I'm fighting hard against the coffee demon. But thanks, Murray. <clears throat> wow. Thank you for correcting me. Yeah. It's love. I know it's love. <clears throat> All right. Um, okay. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but so, so my wife and I have a, a regular date night on the calendar because we have, we, have a full, we have a full life. We have four beautiful children. Um, they're here, by the way, doing school somewhere in the building. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, they're in the building and... And hopefully they're doing school. Um, uh, uh, so our life is full and busy, and we love that. And I, I just think everyone's life is kind of like that. And so in order to put the priority on our relationship, it really does have to be in our schedule. But you can imagine if I showed up to one of our, <clears throat> one of our dates, and, I, and, I, and it was scheduled for just an hour, or, the, the, yeah, and I... And we sat down across from each other, and I was, and I, and I said to her, I said, I said, so, babe, just so you know, like I'm, I'm here, I'm here at the time that was scheduled, and I'm gonna be faithful to you, and I'm gonna provide for you, and, and I'm gonna, um, and, and I'll be, I'll be, I'll, I'll, I'll continue to show up, but I just want you to know, like, I don't feel anything. How, how well do you think that would go on that date? How, how, how would you rate that date? One, negative one, minus, big loss. Well, here's part of the problem is some of us treat our relationship with Jesus like that. It's on the schedule. We put it there because pastor told us we should. And, and, and it's like... And, we know, like, we should spend this time with him, and we sometimes sh show up, and sometimes we don't. And, and, and if truth be told, it's often the thing on the schedule that is the easiest to move out of the way, isn't it? Because there's no one else there. Like, I can't move other meetings out of the way because I'm, I'm going to have a meeting with Amu, so I can't, I, can't, I can't change that meeting because Amu's also going to be there. But, but if I have 30 minutes scheduled with Jesus and somebody else needs that time, I can move it out of the way because he's, he's not really going to be there. But I guess he is. So, so we often treat our relationship with Jesus like that. Like it's in our schedule, it's a to-do list, it's a checkbox. And as, for many of us as believers, we're just happy if we can check the box. Never mind feel something. Actually like want to show up. You know those friendships that you don't have to schedule? The ones that are like, I, I want to be with that person so bad that you're with them for the hour that's scheduled, but then it goes an hour and a half, and it goes, then it goes two hours, and then it goes three, and you're wondering where the time went. I think that's our goal much more than just a 30-minute checked box. So the question is, how does that happen? Because I don't, I don't think Jesus died on the cross for a 30-minute checked 
box, church attendance, and a little bit of better behavior. I just think there was something way bigger in his heart. So the question is, how do we do that? Because because I'm, I mean, if I'm for honest, many of us are still just trying to get the check box. How do I get it to be something where I'm like, like, like it's not long enough. Like, I, I, all I have is an hour in my schedule, and it's never long enough. Like, that's what I want. And I believe as we tap into the story of God, what he's thinking and feeling, we look at him. Paul says, as we behold him, we become more like him. The more that I see him, the more that I'm actually seeing him. And I'm not necessarily seeing him physically, but I'm starting to see his his emotions, his personality, his character trait, the, what he's like as a person. I, I believe he's going to draw us more deeply into his presence where 30 minutes just isn't enough. An hour just isn't enough. And we're trying to figure out in our day how to get more time there and move other things out of the way. I believe that's the goal. That, that's, the, that's what he wanted when he, he went to the cross. A people who were thinking about him all the time because he's thinking about us all the time. And so we want to tap into that story. And Deborah began just even what was happening in the heart of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit before they spoke creation into being. What were they thinking and feeling? Because that's where we were conceived. That's where we were born. That's where the idea of humanity came from. It came from a holy love affair. That's where you and I were born. It wasn't a random set of circumstances. And so if I tap into that, what God was thinking and feeling, I might start to understand who the person is that made me and what he's thinking. That makes all the difference. So if this is what God was thinking before time, what was God thinking at creation? So, so he was dreaming it up, but then he did it. And I, I love this. This is one of the reasons I love this book It's because it's not just a random set of circumstances. This is an invisible God revealing himself through human history. You want to know God? Open this book. You want to know God? Open, this is, this is, he, so our goal is not just to know events. Our, Our goal is not just to know information. Our goal when we open this book is to know a person. Because every story whispers his name. Every story is a revelation of who he is. And the question we should be asking is, God, what were you thinking? Not so much, so like if we're looking at the story of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, we're not trying to just memorize like what happened on day one, what happened on day two. I think that's sort of important. But it's not ultimately important. What's important is what was God thinking? What was he feeling? What was the desire that was burning in his heart? Because if I could, if I could tap into that, something's going to get transformed on the inside of me. That's how I behold him right now. I get to know him as a person. So Genesis 1, we, we see the story of God, the dream of God begin to unfold, and he speaks all of creation into being. Everything that we see, we're driving to the church today and just, I mean, except for time, we just wanted to pull over on the side of the road and just look at the beauty of creation all around us. This is a 
remarkably beautiful place. South Africa is a jewel on the planet. So it's like incredibly beautiful, and everything that we see was spoken into being by God. He sat enthroned, and he said, let there be light, and it was. It just was. But when it came to creating Adam, and it came to creating Eve, the, the story starts to, to look different. It sounds different. When it comes to creating Adam, God comes and it says God forms Adam out of the dust of the earth. Now that's different. He didn't say, let there be Adam. He, he didn't say, let there be mankind. He, he formed Adam out of the dust of the earth. What is the position of God if he's forming us out of the dust of the earth? He's kneeling. Yes. He's, I, I believe, it's, it's this picture right here. So I'm going, God, what were you thinking in the moment when you're like forming us out of the dust of the earth? It's like he's using his hands. His hands are getting dirty. I mean, he's forming us out of the dust of the earth. And it gets this, this you, you have this idea that he, he wants to be near to us. He really cares about this part of the creation. So much so that he's not just going to speak it into being. He's going to form it with his own hands. And then the Bible says that, that God breathes into Adam the breath of life. So I would like someone in the room to come and help me illustrate what it looks like to breathe into someone the breath of life. Anyone? Any takers? Come and... No. No one. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. It's so intimate, okay? So all of us went there instantly. No one, no one wants to illustrate with me what it looks like to breathe into someone. You are my first taker ever. Listen, it'll be a, it'll be a scandal. But just so you know, you are my first taker ever, ever, ever. Well done. Maybe, no, just kidding. Okay. So, oh God. All right. So, all right. Yeah, baby. Luke has taken his coat off. It is getting rather hot in here, isn't it? It's like I, I'm feeling it myself. Okay. Okay, but I love that. Okay, so listen, listen, listen. How many times have you read that phrase and God breathed into Adam the breath of life just and you just, it just, you floated right over it and you never felt how intimate it was. So intimate that it would cause the room to get a little warm, a little awkward. Like I think God's zeal to be intimate with us is the intimacy that he's looking for. It's like it makes us feel a little awkward. I think it's real. And we think the cross was just about, like, getting a few of our, getting our life together. <laughs> like, just doing a few, like, we just, just do things a little. No, no, there's so much more that God was thinking in that moment as he formed us out of the dust of the earth. And he breathed into us the breath of life. And he, you just have this, like, this picture of an expectant father who's forming. It's just, like, bright eyes and a big smile. It's like, this is going to be amazing. 
this ache on the inside for intimacy. And, and then it says that God, for, that, that God planted a garden. I, I love that picture because, I mean, everything around here is a garden. Just by, and he spoke it into it, let there be. But for some reason, the garden where Adam and Eve would walk and talk with him, it was like, it, was, it had to be even better than everything else. So, so it wasn't okay that he just spoke that into existence. He had to plant it himself. And I just like to think about God, again, as the expected father, and just like, this is going to be the place where we walk and talk, and he's thinking about the days and the fellowship and the longing in his heart. And so he's, he's got plants, like, because he's a gardener. So he, he's like, he moves this one over here, and he goes, no, it's got to be over here. No, no, and this one should be over here. And he's, it gives you a picture of a God who digs holes and moves plants. And it's got to be just, it's like he's preparing a nursery for, for the first time. It's like, oh, this is where we're going to be together and share life together. So you get an idea of what he's thinking. It's like, I want to be with you. He's got this ache to be with us. But it gets even better. I mean, in the creation of Eve, God makes a massive statement. I don't know about you, but I've always wondered. It's like, this is such an odd way to create someone. The first way was it makes sense, the forming out of the dust of the earth, and it worked the first time. Why didn't he just do that with Eve? Unless, again, he's wanting to reveal himself to us. He's wanting to tell us who he is and where this story is going. Because if you begin to see that as a prophetic statement, a prophetic act by God to tell us who he is, what he thinks, and where this story is going, you begin to understand the the creation of Eve, where God actually puts Adam to sleep and and opens up the side of Adam and takes from his side and, and makes a bride for Adam, pure and spotless. And says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. If you begin to understand that God was already thinking about the second Adam, Jesus, who would come and the side of the second Adam would be wounded. And from the side of the second Adam would come forth a bride, pure and spotless, who would rule with him forever. And that's why he said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. And Paul says, I speak, you think he's giving marriage counseling, but then Paul says, I speak a great mystery. I speak of Christ and his bride. So even there in Genesis 2, he's already thinking about the church. He's already thinking about the bride. And he goes, what God has joined together, let no man separate. He's going, I want to be with you. He wanted oneness. He wanted to be with us. So that now we begin to understand Genesis 3, the fall. It's like, first of all, how, how do you choose to not trust the creator. Seems baffling, except we do it on a regular basis. And in, in that moment of, of Adam and Eve not trusting the, the, the creator and, and, and choosing their own way, we, we see Adam and Eve now hiding themselves from his presence. That's the automatic response is to hide 
from his presence because of sin and shame. And God comes to walk in that garden that he created for them, for fellowship together. And and he goes, Adam and Eve, where are you? And of course he knows where they are. But Adam says, we've We've, we saw that we were naked and we hid ourselves. And the, father's, the, the father says, who told you you were naked? And, and if we're thinking about our earthly father, we're like, whoa, we're in trouble. Right? Like, stuff's about to go down. I'm in trouble. But, it, but if, you, if you see the zeal of God in Genesis 1 and 2, you know that what he's, what he's angry at there is, is not just the sin. He's angry at the separation. So the, the who told you you were naked? It's the, it's the ache of God that forms us out of the dust of the earth, that, 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 that breathes into us the breath of life and then, and then plants a garden for us and goes, no, I set all of this up so that we could be together. And now you're hiding yourself from me. And so Genesis 3, when he goes, I'm going to have to separate you for a while. This is, this is going to break my heart. This isn't, the, the, this isn't a, a temper tantrum by an angry God. This is a broken heart. I'm going to have to, I'm going to, you're going to have to exit the garden because you won't, you won't be able to survive here. But I'm going to make a way for you to come back. I'm going to make a way for you to come back. He said the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent, and I'm going to turn it all around. I'm gonna, we're, we're only three chapters into the Bible, and we've got the whole story. All the way to Revelation 19, when there is a pure and spotless bride around that throne. The entire Bible has been laid out in three chapters. And if you understand that every other chapter is a revelation of God's zeal in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis, now we begin to understand the Bible. God, what were you thinking? Just every, like, what were you thinking, for example, in Genesis 12, God, when you spoke to Abraham and you said, your descendants will be as the sand of the sea and as the stars of the sky. Your God was, I want to be with you. He's thinking about a people, a redeemed people from every tribe and tongue. And he's like, he's that same expectant father. I want to be with you. What's, what's God thinking in Exodus 19 when he's led his people out of bondage? He's led them out of slavery and, and he's... He's broken in with signs, wonders, and miracles, and he's taken them out. And he's led them to his holy mountain. And there at his holy mountain, he goes, I want you to be, to me, a kingdom of priests. What's God thinking? Because I want to be with you. Friends, because that's what we were made for. You you know, the, the, the mandate that was given to Adam and Eve was that we would have dominion over all things. And that we would tend and keep the garden. Now that phrase, like I grew up, I'm, 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 a, I'm a farm boy. Grew up on a farm. So I, it was very noble, of course, that the first occupation is, is gardener, farming, tending. And I, and I think absolutely there was some of that there. But you have to remember, like, that mandate was given before the curse. Like, I know a little bit about farming. I know enough to know that most of the labor is about pushing back the curse. Most of the labor of, of tending the ground is about, about taking dominion over the curse. What does it mean to tend and keep the garden when there is no curse? 
And friends, and then you have to ask yourself the question, that phrase, tend and keep, do you know when it's used in the Bible? That phrase, tend and keep, is used every time to describe the role of the priests who minister to God. Tend and keep. Tend and keep the place of my presence. Tend and keep the place of my presence. So you understand that we were made for his presence. We were made to minister to him. We were made to be a people who love him with all our heart, soul, and might. That was our created identity. And what we fell from in our sin was that identity. And what he redeemed at the cross was that identity. That we would be the very dwelling place of God. That we would offer up everything we do as a living sacrifice of worship. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all as unto the Lord. That we would be those people who minister to God all day long. And I can do that if I'm tapping into every morning when I wake up. When I wake up, the new mercies that I experience is the God who's been up all night waiting for me to get up so that he can be with me. I, oh, that changes my story today. The God who's been looking over my bed all night long going, I just can't wait for you to get up. We're going to spend the day together. <laughs> like, I want to be with you. Like that. Like that changes my day. That changes my life. That changes my story. Because I'm, I'm walking with him every day in that place of, of fellowship. And it's that story that we want to tap into. And every one of our stories are tied into that story. Because he wants that intimacy with each and every one of us every day. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what we do. You don't have to be, you don't have to be the pastor. You don't, you don't have to be the missionary. You, you, can, you, can be, you can be the one who's cleaning the house, taking care of the kids, the, the one who's doing the laundry, the one who's the plumber, the one who's the electrician, the one, the, the doctor, the every place. You can be that person going, I just, I want to be with you too, God. In everything you do, I want to be with you too, God. That's the global worship and prayer movement. That's the global worship and prayer. People responding to what we were made to do. And he's stirring it right now by his spirit. And not only are we made for his story, but we were made for the end of the story. How many of us are reading a really great book and, or we're in the middle of a really great movie and right when it looks like the bad guy is winning, the plot is thickening, we just take our popcorn and leave. No, we're at the edge of our seat. What's gonna happen? And every great story borrows its story from our story. And so as we see the fall in Genesis 3, what is, how is God going to recover this story? In Revelation 19, 20, 21, and 22, the last four chapters of the Bible, we see this story recovered with flair. We begin to see the culmination of the story. In Revelation 19, it, my, one of my, I think my favorite passage in all of scripture, it's the most real day in our future. It's more real than this table. It, it, it's the most real day. We see a glimpse, just the table of contents, just a glimpse of what is going to happen for all of eternity. And it begins with after these things, which if we look in the context, Revelation 18 is pretty intense. We see the temporal judgments of God. We see man's sin culminate. We see um, the rage of Satan. We, Revelation 18 is pretty severe. 
But in Revelation 19, it says, after these things. And in verse 6 and 7, it says that there's great rejoicing in that day. I, I, I feel like there's a voice that comes from the throne. And can you imagine we're all there? All of us were, were there in with our resurrected bodies, we're standing on the sea of glass mingled with flaming fire. I mean, even my kids, when, I, when they were two years old, I'd say, one day we're going to stand on fire and water. And there's a river of fire. I mean, here we are, a bride. We're all there. Even the people we didn't like. <laughs> oh, you made it. <laughs> uh, there, there we are. We, we, our emotions have been perfected. There's no sin. So there's this voice that comes from the throne, and, he's, and it's, the voice is like giving us permission to give him the glory that is due him. And I don't know about you, but I, I wish I had an awesome singing voice. But like I, I've wanted to give God the glory that is due him. But there's coming a day in our resurrected bodies, we will be before the throne. The voice will come and say, it's time. Let the celebration begin. And with one voice, it says that our voice sounds like many waters and mighty thunderings. Friends, we know that that's how the Father's voice is described in Revelation 1. And that's how Jesus' voice is described in Re Revelation 1. When that day comes and we get to give him the glory that is due him, we will sound like him. Many peals of thunder, many waters, one voice, the Lord God omnipotent reigns, is what we say. It's in essence, we're saying, Father, your son, he is the rightful leader of the human race. The lamb who was slain, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he has prevailed. And in his perfect kindness, he led me. In his mercy, his extravagant mercy, he led me. He led me so well. In his wisdom, he led me. Here I am on the final day. And it says in, in verse 7, a bride made ready. I am ready. Father, your plan is a huge success. We are here ready to marry your son. We've been made ready through the testing and the trying and the proving to be a suitable companion. Okay, so that's, that's Revelation 19, and it's just epic in every phrase, like, let this be your daydream. Every day, we, we can go there. And, and friends, as we let these eternal truths bear down on us, it doesn't really matter if we have money in our bank account. It doesn't even really matter who's fr the friends we have. It doesn't matter. We could be an apostle and be thrown into prison and we'll write an epistle. When we actually discover the truth of the beauty of God and the beauty he's given us, that's what we were made for. And everything else grows strangely dim in the light of that, right? So let's go back, though. Let's step back. Okay, so what does the Bible have to say about the victorious church before that day? Before we're all caught up in our resurrected bodies. And it was so crazy, bizarre, unique to me as I started studying these passages. Because I saw that there was a singing bride. 
So out of the deepest places of knowing the second person of the Trinity, Yahweh, as a husband, a song was erupting from a bride. I mean, if, if someone came to you today and said, who do you say that you are? From the depths of your being, can you say with confidence, I am the lamb's wife. Woe to the enemy. Woe to anyone who touches the apple of his eye. I know where I've come from. I know where I'm going and I know whose I am. I am the lamb's wife. Friends, that's where this is going. The church with deep conviction, more than being sons and daughters, we can't even fathom it, more than being soldiers in an army, more than being servants to a master, the testimony that's going to come from the depths is, I am the lamb's wife. That's where it's headed. But he, he, he's creating a context for his church to come into that identity. And that was what was unique to me when I saw this in scripture. I was like, wow, it's going to be a time of great testing. It's going to be a time of persecution. It's going to be a time of, of, of tribulation. The earth, the earth is, is going to see the temporal judgments of God. You know, in Haggai 2 and then quoted in Hebrews 12, he says, once more I will shake everything that can be shaken. I loved that verse as a 19-year-old, shake everything that can be shaken. It, it, it was like a powerful intercessor, you know, verse. But, but whoa, tremble. So that we all come to the desire of the nations. It's actually his great strategy of mercy to pry us loose of every other thing that we're holding on to and discover that he is our everything. So he's going to shake everything. He's going to, Matthew 13 talks about the wheat and the tares are going to grow up and mature together. So we're going to see bright righteousness in the church. But it's also at the same time that wickedness is going to come to an all-time crescendo. And then we see all through the Bible that man's sin is just going to get more dark and more dark and more dark. Isaiah 60, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness will cover the people. The level of perversion, what, what, what the earth is. But in that context, it's like the, it's white and black. No longer is there any in between. We're going to see the church, it says in Isaiah 60, arise in the brightness of his glory. So it's actually in the context of these three things that we come in to knowing who we are as the bride. It's where voluntary love is beautified in the most severe, mercy kind of way. And friends, I, we're already seeing that. I think, you know, COVID happens, and guess what happened? The prayer, the prayer and worship movement is flourishing. We like just like took like, it was like a rocket of what happened just with COVID. God just allows a little bit of shaking and, and watch, watch out, world, prayer, worship everywhere. It's the one thing we could do, right? And so we are at this moment in human history. It's a tremble moment, but it's a gorgeous moment to be alive. And I have no idea. Jesus could return in hundreds of years. I don't know exactly what time we're in, but I do know things are picking up. And we get to respond in a bridal identity as a singing church. 
that is our invitation in this hour. And, and just to sum it up, I had this, this dream, and in the dream, the father comes to me. Um, and this is the only time I've seen the father in a dream, and he has this bright countenance. You can't even look into it. And he says, Deborah, and he, he had a scroll in his hand, and he goes, look. And he unfans the scroll to everlasting past. And there I see the court of heaven. And they're worshiping. I see the seraphim with the wings and all the eyes. And there they are, worshiping. And he goes, forever there has been worship around the throne. And then he fans out the scroll to everlasting future. And this time, not only do I see the court of heaven, but I see all of the redeemed. And he says, forever. And you could just feel the zeal of the Father. Forever there will be unceasing adoration for my son. And then he fans the scroll back and he says, but there will be one time when it will be on earth as it is in heaven. The whole earth entering into this worship. And he says, and that will welcome my son back. So let's ask ourselves the question just for a moment, because I, I want you to remember four words from this conversation this morning. Worship, prayer, intimacy, partnership. Worship, prayer, intimacy, partnership. Because when we talk about intimacy, sometimes we, 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 we just think, oh, well, okay, that's like, we put it in the intimacy box, and then we put our evangelism in the mission box, or we put our church planting in the kingdom advancement box, or we've got all these boxes, but in God's heart, there's just, there's just one fire. There's just one whirlwind, and it's all together. Understanding his ache that it would be on the earth as it is in heaven, what is it that we see every time we see heaven? Worship. Every, every, John gets taken up to heaven. He sees worship that never stops. Isaiah gets taken up to heaven. He sees worship that never stops. I think David got taken up to heaven. He saw worship that never stopped. I think Moses got taken up. There were a few people. I want to be one of those people. They saw worship that never stopped. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that in that context, Jesus always lives to make intercession. So Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, is in, a, is in the sanctuary or the throne room of God. He's in the throne room. He's in the place of his government where worship never stops. And Jesus always makes intercession. So now we understand worship and prayer are important because they always happen in heaven. And I believe they're the very foundation of his government. Worship, prayer, intimacy. The invitation of, 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 of Jesus in John 17 was, Father, I desire that they would be with me. That they would be with us in the fellowship that we know. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The same love the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Spirit. And that divine whirlwind of three people. But they're so much alike that you can't tell. And they just look like one. They're three in one. But, it's, but there's this perfect unity. Holy love affair. That's where he wants us. Intimacy. It's, it's not just, hey, get a little closer. No, no, it's, it's in that fire of intimacy. And when we talk about, when Jesus talks about the bride, when he goes, no, it's going to be a bride made ready, it's not weird like 
we're all going to be like a girl in a dress. That's not what it's about. It's the statement of I'm bringing you into the deepest place of intimacy. Like there is no greater intimacy that you could have with God than to have it be compared to a bride that is actually taken from his side and is now bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh and is going to rule and reign with him forever. Partnership. Never separate intimacy and partnership. It's a little bit like the story of Esther who's brought into the throne room, who's brought into a place of power, who then, who, who then partners with the king to save the people. Friends, our, our labor for the kingdom is always from the place of intimacy. All of our power is from the place of intimacy. You can't separate them. Worship, prayer, intimacy. It's, what we were, it's the, I want to be with you, and it's, the, and, it, and it's the, have dominion over everything. Intimacy and partnership. Those two cannot be separated. Intimacy, partnership. Everything God does, he does from the place of intimacy. Every way that he moves in our life, he does from that foundation of intimacy. Every, every way that he moves on the earth. You know, when the Bible describes it, it's like a fire goes before him and consumes all of his enemies. That sounds so disruptive. But you know where that foundation is? It's in love. It's a fire of intimacy. And we want to live from that place and understand that that's who we are. That as we walk, we talked a little bit about this here Sunday night. It, it was that this is how we bring heaven to earth. We, we bring his kingdom. We, we bring his throne room through worship, prayer, intimacy, and partnership. But it's critical that you understand that right now we're seeing uh, an, an acceleration, a crescendo in the church hungering, longing that it would be on the earth as it is in heaven. I mean, you know that we've prayed this prayer for thousands of years. Jesus taught us to pray. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Boom, let your kingdom come and let your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. And friends, a lot of times we're, we're wanting the results of his kingdom. We're wanting the results of his government. Like, I, I was just told at the break that the, the roads are better here because of the government than they are in Potchester. All right, so government changes things. Friends, friends, God wants to change things on the earth through his government. Through his government. He wants to change things through his government. So you don't get the results of the kingdom unless you actually enter into the government of the kingdom. The government of the kingdom is in worship, prayer, intimacy, and partnership. That's the government. In the governmental throne room of heaven, there's worship that never stops. There's prayer that never stops. There's intimacy that never stops. That We want to live in that reality, and God's bringing the church into that ache. That's why I know that there's people in this room aching, longing, already building house of prayer, longing for 24-7, fueled by the Holy Spirit that it would be on the earth as it is in heaven. And it's important, even as we look at this, that we understand the time that we live in because I believe that Jesus is answering this prayer right now. He's answering a prayer that he's been praying from the very beginning. Genesis 1, that's what he's always wanted. <laughs> I want to be with you. I want it to be on the earth as it is in heaven. 
which is why he came in the fullness of flesh to remove the separation so that it could be on the earth as it is in heaven. I think it's important that we understand the time that we live in in that context. And like Deborah says, I don't know. I mean, it's like in the middle of COVID, it's like Jesus could come in 10 years or Jesus could come in 100 years. I don't know. And the Bible is very clear about timing. But you have to understand that we as a church should always be talking about his return. We should never avoid it. I think we've avoided it for many years because of embarrassment. And, and I think at times, you know, we, the church has like said, it's going to be, in, it's going to be, and it's like, we should never do that. The Bible's so clear. Don't do that. But, but the entire New Testament is also filled with promises about his second coming. So Paul never planted a church without talking about the return of Jesus. And the gospel of the kingdom is not the gospel of the kingdom without a returning king. It's just not. It's not good news without a king that's coming and without a kingdom that's coming. So we always want to live in that reality to know because it, the beginning of the story and the end of the story make a difference. That's why he gave it to us. That's why he gave it to us. So there's a couple of timing indicators in the word that I, I think we should be familiar with because Paul says we are not those who uh, walk in darkness that the day of the Lord should come as a thief in the night. I think there's a delusion in the church that we, we should, that, that the, Jesus is going to come as a thief in the night to the church. Paul actually doesn't say that. Paul says, Paul says that when we walk in the light, we're going to know the times and the seasons. That's what he says. All right. So, so, so we should think about timing indicators. Like, what does the Bible say? And I think one of the most clear ones to the church is Matthew 24. The disciples, 2,000 years ago, they come to Jesus, and they're recognizing that, okay, this is not the time that Jesus is going to set his kingdom up on the earth. They, they began to understand it. But they said, okay, so then what are the signs or what are the promises of your coming? And Jesus he lists a bunch of things. The big thing was don't be deceived. And then he says, but, he said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. So, so, so that's a timing indicator. And friends, we live in a remarkable time uh, uh, where, where the church and global missions organizations are working together like never before. There's just a unity that God's bringing because we've been praying for it. There's a unity that God's bringing that is causing the entire missions world to look at all the unreached, unengaged people groups and go, we'll take them, we'll take them, we'll take them, we'll go there, we'll go there. It's happening right before our eyes, Matthew 24. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a witness to all nations. That's a promise. And then the end will come. All right, so, so we have to be busy doing this partnership with him to advance his kingdom and take the gospel to all people. You know, I was in a missions conference in Kansas City about 10 years ago, and Steve Douglas is, is now the president of Campus Crusade for Christ, a global missions organization, one of the largest. And he said, he said this, he said, if I just live to the Average age of an American male, he says, I believe that I could see the fulfillment of the Great Commission in my lifetime. 
And he was in his mid-60s at the time. It's now 10 years later. Friends, those are big statements, but I believe those statements. We need to long for those kinds of statements. We need to be those people that long for his appearing. It's, it's remarkable to see even how Bible translation uh, ministries are working together. Wycliffe Bible Translators, Seed Company, others, and, and increased unity and technology has moved us from the place of a, a New Testament taking 13 years to translate into another language to now it takes two. Takes two. And by the year 2025, the organized, that's just so close. By the year 2025, they're saying they'll have started a translation of the New Testament in every language needed on the earth. Friends, this is one of the greatest hindrances to the gospel going to every people is Bible translation. And so God's moving that out of the way right now. So we live in an incredible time as we watch God do this globally. But there's another timing indicator in the Bible that I think we need to be aware of because we're talking about it all day today. And we need to be aware that it's, it's not just a random conversation nor another program of the church, but an actual timing indicator. Something that God spoke about throughout his word. And we'll look at the book of Revelation 5 for just a moment. Revelation 5 verse 8. Again, this is a scene that, this is what John sees. John, there's an invitation that comes to John. There's a door that he sees standing open in heaven, and he's taken up in the spirit, and the invitation is that God would show him what must soon take place. In that context, in Revelation 5, John sees this. So he sees a lamb as if it had been slain, the scroll with seven seals, and the question is asked, who is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals? And what we want to feel in that moment is that's God's leadership of the human race. And if there's no one worthy to take that scroll and actually open its seals, that means all of the ache and longing for earth that's in us, all for the, all the wrong things to be made right. Poverty and corrupt governments and human trafficking and and. And all of the injustice on the earth, that God's going to make all of those things right. He's going to turn those things all around. So there's weeping in heaven because there was no one. But then John sees a lamb as if it had been slain. And, and the lamb is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, to lead human history, to turn it all around. And in that context, in Revelation 5 verse 8, he says this, now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures that are right around the throne of God and the 24 elders, there's 24 more thrones around his throne. We talked about this on Sunday. Those are human elders around the throne of God. Each fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and a golden bowl that is full of incense. And he calls this the prayers of the saints. So those 24 thrones in heaven that's what John sees. There's, there's, there's God at the center of it all, and then there's 24 more thrones around that. <laughs> like, what kind of king puts 24 more thrones in his throne room? Only God. And those elders are worshiping with a harp. That's, that's the picture of the harp, is that they're musicians. Somehow, they're, or they're worshiping. And then, and then they've got bowls full of incense, which the Bible calls the prayers of the saints. And, and what does it say where those bowls are at? 
Are they half full? Personally full. What are they? Full. They're full. They're full. So it's all of the prayers of the saints. And I, I just believe that there are real bulls in heaven with real incense that rises before God with, the prayers of, with our prayers in them. The, all of the prayers that you've prayed your entire life, the, the real focused on your knees, hands folded in a room with people, and just the short cries for help. I'm like, oh, God, help. Like, they're all there. They're not forgotten. They didn't end at the ceiling. Every conversation, every cry for help, they're there. They're the prayers of the saints. What a picture. There they are in the very throne room of God. All of your conversations with him, he stores them. What is Oh, if I could only remember every conversation I've ever had with my children. Like, you know those sweet conversations that you have with your kids? You're like, I'm going to remember this one forever. You know, when they're five and three and just those short things that they say. He remembers every one of them. Every one of the conversations he has, he remembers them. I mean, the Bible says he holds all of our tears in a bottle. I mean, I love to think about that God. Like, he is like the most sentimental parent ever. Like, who of you save your child's tears? Like, you might have a few report cards, but I bet you don't have their tears. And you've never recorded every one of the conversations that you've had with them, but he has. And they're all there. They're all there around the throne. And there's another passage that talks about that incense in Revelation 8. Turn there with me, because I think it's so important that you see this. Not just hear me say it, but see it. Because it's powerful not because someone says it. It's powerful because it's in his word. So Revelation 8, verse 1 through 6, I believe is another timing indicator about the time that we live in and the global worship and prayer movement that we're seeing right now. So this is what Revelation 8, verse 1 through 6 says. When he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it together with all the prayers of the saints. Where are the prayers of those saints? In bowls that are filled. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound. Friends, those seven trumpets, so let's just start at the end of that passage. Those seven trumpets are the final trumpet judgments of God. It's God's zeal that it would be on the earth as it is in heaven. He's going to make all the wrong things right. Friends, we are those people who love the judgments of God. We're not, I'm just telling you, he's the kindest one we know. We never want to be those people who are afraid of the judgments of God unless we're living in sin. We are, we are those people that we love the judgments of God because when he comes, even to my own life, he comes to make the wrong things right. 
So those seven trumpet judgments, he's coming to make the wrong things right on the earth. But what happens just before that? Here's what the Bible says. There is an angel in heaven that takes a censer. Now, I don't know if you've been in a more liturgical church or a Catholic church where, where a priest comes in from the back, normally dressed in a robe, and he's, he's got a censer. And it's, got, it's, it's like a ball, a metal ball that's got incense on the inside of it, and it's normally on a chain. And he walks in from the back, and it's a picture of the presence of God. It's the picture of our worship and our intercession ascending before the throne of God. They got it right from here in Revelation 8. It's very biblical. It's our, it's the worship of the saints and the prayers of the saints ascending before heaven. That's what's going to happen. That's what's happening right now when we gather. There literally is worship and, 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 and prayer and incense rising right now. So the angel takes, what, is, what does the angel put into the censer? The prayers of the saints. So he takes all of the prayers of the saints that are in those bowls. And I know this is like, it's, it's like, yeah, but this is symbolic. I think it's symbolic and it's very literal. I think there's an angel that's going to take all of our prayers. He puts them in this giant censer. And then he takes that censer, all of our prayers, and he casts it down to the earth. And look at Revelation 8. What happens when he casts it down to the earth? There's earthquake. There's noises. There's lightning. There's thunder. Where do we see that description earlier in the book? Early in in Revelation. Chapter 4. Where? There is. There is at the cross, yes, and I believe that was because heaven touched earth in that moment. At the throne, yes. So when John sees the throne room, he says there's lightning and there's thunder and there's voices and there's an earthquake. And that's a picture of the throne room. Look what happens when the angel takes our prayers, casts them down to the earth. All of a sudden, what's happening around the throne is now happening on the earth. Friends, I'm just telling you, our prayers are way more powerful than we really think they are. Like all the prayers that you've ever prayed, they've never been wasted, and they're all going to be, they're all stored by God. Every, every conversation, I love it, every conversation you've ever had with him is stored. He's kept it. He's remembered it. And one day, your partnership with him in your simple conversations with him every day will usher in the very judgments of God on the earth. that changes every little conversation I have with God, doesn't it? Friends, we have this idea that Jesus is going to split the sky one day and just come. Like, I don't know when he's going to come, but he's just going to come. No, he's not coming until those bowls are filled with our worship and prayer. Because it's actually our worship and prayer that brings him back. It's our worship and prayer that brings him back. That's what Revelation 8 says. It actually prepares the earth for his presence. It's us. So, so it would make sense that before Jesus returns, there's going to be a growing worship and prayer movement on the earth, wouldn't it? If that's actually what brings him back, Revelation 8. Then I go, oh, wow. Jesus is preparing the church to be a bride in the place of worship and intercession and intimacy to rule and reign with him. That's it. Like, that's what it looks like for us to rule and reign with him. All of a sudden, all of our prayers for thousands of years actually execute vengeance on the earth, and all the wrong things are made right. 
<laughs> Friends, every little prayer, one day we're going to see every little conversation, every little prayer meeting that you've had that seemed to go nowhere. We're going to understand that it shook angels and demons and shifted human history. We're going to see it one day. I'm telling you, we're going to see it one day. Every little prayer gathering at a school, a college, a high school, in your home, every family prayer gathering, every church prayer gathering, it shifted, pushed back demons, released angels, shook heaven and earth, and shook nations. Psalm 149 tells us that when we sing, we execute vengeance on nations. You want to shift things in South Africa? Just sing more. Sing more. Friends, that's why we sing. I, be I believe the, the reason the world is as light as it is still, filled with light still, is because the church gathers to sing and pray and preach and proclaim the gospel. It's, we are salt and light in that place. And every time, every time we gather to sing, it's like angels released over South Africa, demons pushed back over South Africa, and we don't know it. We just think we're going through the motions, but we're doing the most powerful thing that we were created to do. So the worship and prayer movement is more than just a little prayer meeting at the church. It might just be a little prayer meeting. But it's the most powerful thing we do. And it's preparing the church, making us one in the place of worship and intercession to prepare the way for Jesus to come back. That's not little. Friends, none of us have to be very important to do that. None of us have to have a big social media platform. We don't have to be famous. We don't have to have all the power. We don't have to have all the money. The simplicity of this good news is that you can shift human history in little conversations that you have with God and no one ever has to know your name. It's the most powerful thing we can do. So I believe this is what God's doing. He, it just says the gospel is going forth like never before. At the same time, there's this burgeoning growing worship and prayer movement, which is why people like James are writing songs that the whole earth is going to sing. Because there's a movement on the earth for the church to worship together. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language. It's going to welcome Jesus back. The church is going to understand its place of power in intimacy, in worship, prayer, intimacy. And it's going to be unlike we've ever seen. It's going to be, I believe that we're going to see the greatest harvest of souls the world has ever seen. I believe the greater works are yet to come. The greater works, these great, the, you're going to do greater works than these. They're still coming as we bring his government to earth as a church. Greater works are coming. I, I believe every dream that you have for South Africa is going to happen in God's heart. And every dream that we all have for our nations as we take our place in the government of God. So this afternoon, we're going to spend some time actually growing in the place of prayer. And the kind of prayer that you can do anywhere. You don't have to be at church, but you can. It is simple principles to do this anywhere and always from his word. And we're just going to grow together. It's going to be so much fun. So we'll have lunch. And then we'll come back in an hour ish, 1230. All right. So Lord, seal your word, move in us, come again quickly. Amen. Do you have any information you need to give them?
And Lord, thank you for the food and the blessing it is and our fellowship around the table. We love you. Amen. Amen.